This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here this morning. I want to confess, though, that I almost didn't come. I was with uh, some folks from New City on Thursday night, and I heard what started off as a fun and friendly story, almost like a cartoon of a little squirrel that had approached a few of the moms after a Bible study. Uh, And it turned quickly into a horror movie that involved the squirrel jumping into someone's mouth. Um, Now, I'm going to offend you. I'm not a lover of cats. But I almost adopted a cat this weekend and brought it on a leash just to protect me uh, making it into the building. But thankfully, I kept my mouth closed when I walked in the building and uh, didn't have any harm, didn't have any trouble with the squirrel. But... uh, All kidding aside, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, Thank you, Damien, for having me. I have watched New City uh, from afar for since the beginning, really, and very grateful for the ministry of this church, Uh, grateful for your emphasis on community Bible reading and discipleship, Uh, grateful for the way you are a blessing to the city, Uh, how you take care of RTS students and alums. So proud of Eric Stites and the ministry there at New City Paramore, too. So it's a, a great privilege to be with you. And I'm thrilled to be looking at Matthew 5, uh, 13 through 16. And this vision that Jesus sets before us of a city on a hill. Now this is a metaphor, of course, that you can't help but be familiar with as Americans, right? John Winthrop, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded, said that, America was going to be a city on a hill with the eyes of all people upon it. And this image rings throughout our history as one of our defining images as a nation. Now, we can perhaps appreciate Mr. Winthrop's allusion to this text as just a bit of our cultural heritage. But as a piece of exegesis, is actually rather flawed, right? Matthew chapter 5 is not a charter for the United States of America. Matthew chapter 5 is not the charter for any nation, but it's a charter for the church. And it's a call for the church to be a city on a hill and a light in the midst of all the nations. Well, our passage comes immediately following the Beatitudes, a passage you've discussed for the last two weeks, 
where Jesus tells all who follow him that they shall inherit the blessing and the promise of happiness, right? It's not just a word of blessing, but it's a word about human flourishing in the presence of God to the glory of God. And so Jesus has pronounced these statements of, of blessing, of, of happiness upon his followers. But he's also told them that following him is not only the path to happiness, it's not only the path to human wholeness in God's presence, but it's a path of suffering. It's a path that will bring the church, that will bring this community that Jesus has founded into conflict with the world around it. Uh, after our passage, Jesus will go on to describe the ethic and the religion of the community as one that fulfills the law of Moses, that doesn't lay it aside. He'll talk about the nature of true religion, right? He'll cover prayer. He'll cover the giving of alms. He'll cover fasting. He covers uh, many of the elements of Christian ethics, dealing with things like marriage and divorce, lust, anger, truthful speech, the taking of oaths. And then he concludes describing this community that he is founding or refounding as a community that's founded on the rock. The rock of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the rock of his person, which Peter will confess in John six in Matthew 16, you are the son of the blessed one, and ultimately, of course, the community that's founded on the rock of his death and resurrection. Towards the end of Matthew, Jesus will describe himself as the stone that the builders rejected, but has in God's wonderful providence become the cornerstone. Well, our text fits within this broader context of the Sermon on the Mount by issuing the church's calling within the world, what Jesus calls the church to be in relationship to the world. This is very relevant within the context of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus has just said, you're going to suffer in the world, right? And you can imagine that perhaps the, the, the stance of this community is, is, is that it's going to be tempted to want to withdraw from the world, right? Or perhaps it's going to be tempted to want to conform to the world. But Jesus rejects both of these options in this passage and calls the church to be salt and light, he calls the church to be a missional community characterized by moral excellence, lives that glorify God, lives that benefit the world around it. Well, I want us to spend a few minutes this morning uh, looking at three aspects of this passage. First, two images for the church's calling in the world. Second, two forms of betraying the church's calling in the world, and then finally, and third, how the church fulfills its calling in the world. So first, two images of the church's calling in the world, salt and light. Now, salt flavors things. I had salt this morning on my egg, right? Salt preserves things. Light illumines things, and this is the basic sense of both of these metaphors. Both salt and light are to do good, and specifically, they're to do good for the world. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. 
So, note that both of these metaphors are relational in nature. We're describing the church's relationship to the world, right? It's salt of the earth, light of the world. Note also, though, that both of these images, both of these metaphors presuppose a contrast between the church and the world. In the midst of a decadent world, in the midst of a world that's dying, the church is to be salt. It's to be a preservative. In the midst of a world that is dark, under the shadow of death, the church is called to be a light. Now, I think there's one more thing significant about these metaphors, and it's interesting to, to draw our attention to it. In the case of both salt and light, these two aspects, these two realities of the church have a dual effect on their surroundings. And this is going to be true of the church as well. It's going to have a dual effect on the world around it, right? When, 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 you, when you got a little bruise and you're at the beach, what do you want to do? You want to go in the ocean. Why? Salt water. It's going to be healing. But, but what does the salt water do at the same time that it's going to heal your, your scab or whatever? It stings, right? When you wake up in the middle of the night, as someone my age does, and you make your way to, to the bathroom and you turn on the light, what happens when you turn on the light? Well, it irritates your eyes, but it also makes sure you don't stub your toe. And this is what the church, this is the effect that the church will have on the world around it. It will confound the world. It will be an irritant in some ways. But the very same things about the church, the, the very same reality of the church that causes it to be an offense and an irritant is also what enables it to be a means of healing, of bringing wholeness, of shining a light on the path of those around us. Now, as Damien mentioned earlier, we can't understand this metaphor of light without realizing that the church and the community of Jesus Christ is a reflective light. William Perkins, in his commentary on this passage, says we have to distinguish two kinds of light when we think about light in Scripture. We have to think about original light, that is something that produces light by its own power, by its own radiance. And then we have to think about a derivative light, something that reflects light based upon another external source of light. Think of the relationship between the sun and moon, right? The sun is original light. It's intrinsically radiant. But the moon has no light in and of itself. It reflects light. It reflects the light of the sun. Well, this is the, the relationship between Jesus and the church, according to Matthew. Jesus is the original light. He's the light of the world. The church is the city that's built around Jesus and that reflects his light to the world. Consider a, a few examples from Matthew's gospel of Jesus' identity as light. Matthew portrays Jesus' coming as the coming of a great light. He says that in Jesus, a great light has dawned. Remember when the wise men are traveling to visit Jesus after he had been born. They said, we saw his star when it rose. 
And Isaiah 60 earlier talks about the rising of the light. There's perhaps an allusion there to the coming of light in Jesus. When Jesus, in his early public ministry, moved to Capernaum and made it his home, it says that on those dwelling in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus is later described as the servant of the Lord in Matthew chapter 12. And we know from Isaiah that the vocation, the calling of the servant of the Lord is to be a light to the nations. At Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes were white as light. And I believe Luke adds, brighter than any light that any launderer on the earth could launder. And the point is, this is a divine light. This is God's light. God of God, light of light, in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus dies on the cross, it says it was dark at noon. And we know from the Old Testament that darkness at noonday is a sign of divine cursing. And here we see the, the great mystery and wonder of Christ's purpose in coming among us. That he who is light in himself would bear the darkness and curse of divine judgment. But of course we know why he did this. In order that through his resurrection on Easter morning, he would be the one who abolished death. And as Paul says, would bring light, life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, Matthew says Jesus is the great light. And in Jesus, God's own light, original light, divine light, has dawned. And not only that, he's made his dwelling among us. He is Emmanuel. You remember what Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 28 at the Great Commission? I am with you always. And so in Jesus' coming, the promise of Isaiah 60, which we read earlier, God's light has dawned upon his people. He's come to dwell in their midst. And we, in turn, have now become a city of light, a city on a hill that reflects Christ's light to the nations. And it's fascinating when you, when you look at the background for this imagery, what does it mean for the church to be a city of light, a city that reflects Christ's light to the world around it? We see not only Isaiah 60 with the language of changing beauty for ashes and so forth, but you see in Isaiah chapter 2 the, the language of the mountain of the house of the Lord being exalted above all other mountains. And what Isaiah says there is that the nations will stream to that city. This is the imagery behind Jesus' description of the church as a light, as a city on a hill. So, our calling, salt and light, to reflect the light of Christ in the midst of the world to the nations. But note, second, two ways of betraying this calling that Matthew introduces. Two forms of betrayal. Look at the second part of verse 13. If salt has lost its taste, literally if it's lost its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. 
mentioned the context of, of this passage coming immediately on the Beatitudes, where Jesus has promised happiness and wholeness to those who follow him, but he's also warned them of the suffering that is inevitable. Well, I believe in this passage, Jesus addresses two temptations that the church will face as they begin to reflect Christ's light in the world. The first temptation is to be what we might call the secular church, the saltless church. When the church faces persecution, formal persecution or informal persecution, persecution in the form of verbal criticism, persecution in the form of physical imprisonment or even death, the church is tempted toward secularization. That is, the church is tempted to forsake its saltiness, its distinctive flavor, for adopting the world's standards, for seeking the world's approval. This is the first temptation that Jesus addressed. Now, I think in some ways the the, the kind of attractional church is, is kind of a sanitized version of the secular church, right? It, not, it's not so much worried about being killed, but it's worried about being uncultured and uncool. And so, therefore, it changes itself. It, it, it loses its distinctive flavor in order to reflect the world around it. The irony, of course, is that Jesus says this church becomes useless. I mean, what's the point, Right? The world is always better at being the world than the church is. And the churchly imitations of the world are, are always lame, right? They're always sad. They're always, at the end of the day, embarrassing. And so Jesus says, this kind of church, this church that in the face of persecution, the face of the fear of embarrassment, the, 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 the fear of following Christ, of bearing his cross, that takes on a reflection of the world, this church is good for nothing, it's worthy of being trampled under men's feet. But the second temptation, the, the, the second really betrayal of the church's calling that Jesus addresses here is not what we might call the secular church. It's what we might call the sectarian church. Look at verse 15. Talking about a light and its purpose, Jesus says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light in all the house. When I was growing up, we used to sing a song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. It comes from this verse, right? Well, that song renounces the possibility of a sectarian church. The idea here, of course, is that as the church faces persecution, as the church faces embarrassment, whatever opposition it may face as it attempts to follow Christ. Here, the church does not adopt the ways of the world to avoid persecution. It, it doesn't seek to conform itself to the world and, and, and seek the world's approval, but what it does is it withdraws from the world, right? It, it, it seeks to form, as it were, a, a separate, a segregated Christian culture. Actually, grew up in a church kind of like this, right? Instead of prom, we're going to have Christian prom, right? Instead of rock, we're going to have Christian rock. Instead of movies, we're going to have Christian movies. And again, not to criticize necessarily every example of these things, 
But this is the temptation of the church. In the name of seeking to honor God, in the name of seeking to preserve its purity, it pulls out and withdraws from the world. This church thinks it can honor God while forsaking the needs of his neighbor. Now, what's fascinating is that the, the first error, the first temptation, right? The secular church is one that, that's pretty obvious. And, and, and we kind of, yeah, that's wrong, not going to do that. The second one is, 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 is a, a bit more subtle, right? The second temptation is the temptation of the orthodox. It's the temptation of those who want to confess Jesus' name, who want to seek to honor God in our lives, who want to seek to live according to Scripture. And yet the second temptation is the one that Jesus issues some of the sternest rebukes against in the Gospels. You see, what the Pharisees were very good at was preserving the ceremonial law, for example, regarding the Sabbath, or promoting the worship of God in the, the having folks dedicate certain parts of their living for the temple's beautification. But what Jesus denounced them for was not that they were seeking to honor God, but that they were willing to keep the Sabbath, that they were willing to collect money for the beautification of the temple at the cost of loving their neighbor. And so he rebukes the Pharisees when they criticize his disciple for plucking grain on the Sabbath because he says, you don't realize that the point of the law is what? Mercy, not sacrifice. The Sabbath is not a day where men are to suffer, but where they are to flourish. He rebukes those who are collecting this funds for the temple beautification because they're collecting funds that should have been devoted to doing what? Honoring their fathers and their mothers, caring for ailing family members. And he says, so with your tradition, you're actually causing people to break the commandment to honor your father and mother. And he says, this people, this people who are zealous for the worship of God, but have no regard for their neighbors and their needs, these are the people who, in Isaiah's words, Honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There are some things that the church can only do as a gathered church. Worship, have the public proclamation of his word, the ministry of sacraments, to offer their prayer and praise to God. But there are many things that the church should and must do out in the world as the scattered church if it's to fulfill the calling that Jesus has given it, to be a city on a hill. Well, how then does the church fulfill the calling that Jesus has given it? We see this in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Michael Goheen describes the image of the church in Matthew 5 as the image of a contrast community. It's a distinctive community of its own. It is a city, right? And in this sense, the church's calling is not something any of us can fulfill merely as individuals. 
Jesus is seeking to establish a community. But it's a contrast community. It's a community that is distinguished from the world around it. This, of course, is what invites persecution. The, the world doesn't see itself in the church, and therefore it despises and, and hates it. But this is also what, when the Spirit opens the eyes of the blind and softens the heart of the dead, this is also what makes the church attractive to those around it. That, that makes the church a model of true human wholeness and flourishing. That, that draws those who do not know the Lord to give glory to God. Well, it's in verse 16 that we see that this contrast community, we, we see how it actually fulfills its vocation as salt and light. And this is a very important point. The meaning of salt and light. According to Jesus, being salt and light consists in living lives of moral excellence. What does the world around us see when they see us and when they see Christ in us? They see your good works. And the term used there is not the normal term for good. It's actually the term for beauty, for excellence. They see your moral excellence and give glory to God. You see, what the church knows and what the world doesn't know is that God's law is not an arbitrary standard. Right? It knows that God's law was designed for human flourishing. C.S. Lewis says cars are made to run on gasoline and human beings are made to run on God. And there is no human flourishing apart from God's law for that reason. Well, it's as we follow God's law, as we're broken by it, as it exposes us in our sin, but as we also, by the Spirit of Christ, are renewed to walk in the Lord's ways, that we become this attractive, compelling image to the world around us. According to Jesus, moral living, moral excellence is missional living. I tell a story on my wife a few years back. She was, uh, had a friend over, family involved in, in Christian ministry, and a friend said something to the effect, she, she was a mom, young kids, uh, just like we had. She said something that when my husband and I got married, we made an agreement that I wasn't going to spend all my time raising these kids because I needed to spend some time for the Great Commission. Now, I understand the, the motive and, and, and the good heart behind that statement, but Lee's jaw hit the ground when she said that. Why is that? Because the call of Christian discipleship and the call of making discipleship is not something you do on top of other things Jesus calls you to do, right? Our, our jobs in the workplace, our raising of children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, our being faithful husbands and wives and workers and so forth, these aren't kind of extra things that, that when we can take time off from these things, we can be missional, right? No, it's in doing these things as Jesus has revealed them to be done. In the midst of the world, it's in doing these things that we are fulfilling our missional calling. And we are being a, a, a contrast community in the midst of the world. And again, this is not to say there's no place for evangelism, because that's part of the way we follow Christ. We honor his name. We speak his name. We confess his name. Okay? But the platform of evangelism 
It's the life of obedience to Christ. Moral excellence, moral living is missional living. Well, what then is the good work that Jesus calls us to do? What does the good work consist in? And of course, the answer is it's, it's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. Uh, the Reformed tradition based upon Scripture has traditionally defined a good work as something that's rooted in faith in God's goodness, something that's directed by God's law, and something that aims at the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. A good work is rooted in faith in God's goodness. The beginning of all Christian ethics, the beginning of all Christian living is the confidence that God, our Father in heaven, for the sake of his Son, accepts us and our works for Christ's sake. It rests on the confidence that our Father in heaven will provide our daily bread. This is why Jesus can, can teach us that we don't need to be anxious. This is why Jesus can teach us that we can be generous with the things God has given us. Why? Because we're not trusting ourselves to take care of ourselves. We have a good Father in heaven. We trust that God in Christ has promised to give us an eternal kingdom. And so our hope and our future is secure. Good works begin in faith in God's goodness. Good works are directed by God's moral law. And this is where Jesus goes immediately after this passage. Saying, look, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it personally on our behalf. But he also came to found a community in which it will be fulfilled as well. And again, God's moral law, as Jesus expounds us, is severe in its exposure of the depth of our sin. Right? We can no longer say, well, I've never committed adultery because I haven't cheated on my spouse. Now we have to say, if there's lust in my heart, then I violated that commandment. Okay? We can no longer say, I've never committed murder because I haven't. I'm not lying in jail, charged with murder. We now have to say, if I have anger in my heart, then I've broken that commandment. But of course, Jesus' instruction there is not just to expose us in our sins, right? It's to offer the path for being the people he wants us to be, a chaste people, a, a people who forgive our enemies rather than seeking their destruction, a people who speak the truth rather than speak lie, a people who are faithful in our relationships rather than unfaithful. And so God's law, it directs this life of obedience that unfolds based upon the possibility of our faith in God's goodness, that he forgives us of our sins, that, that our failures vis-a-vis -vis his law aren't going to compromise our acceptance with him, but rather he has promised in Christ and by his spirit to give us all that is necessary to do he requires. And then, of course, good works are those which are aimed at God's glory and our neighbor's good. All that we do, we do because we have a Father in heaven who is worthy of our service. He's worthy of our obedience. Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 6, will rebuke those whose aim in good works is what? Gaining an audience from others. Okay, well, you say, what's the difference between 
wanting them to see your good works, as Jesus does in chapter 5, and, 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 and his, his criticism of don't do good works to be seen by others. Well, it, it's the aim. It's the goal. In the first instance, you, 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 you're living your life in public, as it were, that others may give glory to God. In the second instance, you're committing idolatry. How so? Because you're trying to make worshipers of yourself. Look how righteous and wonderful he is she is. But the second part of this motive for moral excellence is, is, is important to note. It's not just that true moral excellence is aimed at God's glory and not our own. True moral excellence is named, aimed at our neighbor's good and not God's. You know, one of the things, one of the, the little traps we fall into so often in the Christian life is we think that when we do good, we're somehow benefiting God. And this is not only kind of a failure to understand the nature of our good works, mixed as they are with sin, but it's ultimately a failure to understand God. Remember what Paul tells the, the Athenian in Acts chapter 17, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. With God, there's the fullness of life in and of himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God eternally blessed, eternally happy. God doesn't need our good works. You know who needs our good works? Our neighbors. And so the motive for moral excellence is to serve our neighbors. And this is precisely where the two ways of betraying our calling fall short. Right? The secular church thinks that it can do good to the world without pleasing God and glorifying God, without walking according to his word. The sectarian church thinks that it can glorify God without doing good to the neighbor. But Jesus says, no. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our Father in heaven. There's an interesting thing about uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, when the con within the context of the Sermon on the Mount and within the context of the Beatitudes. Jesus knows what he's doing and, and, and teaching these things in this order. In the Beatitudes, he says, follow me, you'll find the good life. Follow me, you'll find a life that ends in the Father's presence, seeing his face. Blessed are the pure in heart. That is those who desire one thing above all things. For they shall see God. But in this world you'll also find suffering. You'll also find persecution. Well the reason Jesus teaching about how we're to relate to the world. The reason that follows his teaching about suffering is this. Just as our moral excellence. Just as our following the ways of Christ. Will become occasions for suffering in this world. So those occasions for suffering will also become occasions for evangelism, occasions for giving witness to Christ, occasions for the recovering of sight for the blind, occasions for creating worshipers of God through us. And so in the midst of a dark and decaying world, Jesus calls the church to be salt and light. 
And the trick is, in following Jesus, he's the forerunner in this regard. Right? Matthew's gospel says, Jesus lived a life that was utterly and solely devoted to the glory of the Father. What does he teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus' entire life was a hallowing of the Father's name. Jesus lived a life that was devoted to the good of others. You remember when he describes himself as the son of man who came not to what? Be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what did this life of devotion to God's glory, what did this life of devotion to his neighbor's good lead to? It led to his persecution and ultimately his crucifixion. But of course, as Matthew wants us to see, it's in Jesus dying on the cross, it's in Jesus breathing of his last breath that a Gentile centurion, one of the nations, a member of one of the nations who, who lived in the darkness, what did he confess? Truly, this was God's son. How beautiful, how lovely, how luminous is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew says, we're the city built on his foundation. We don't shine by a light that is our own. We shine by a light that is his. But in union with Christ, we do shine. And so, New City Church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your beloved Son, God of God, true God of true God, light of light, to dwell among us, to become our brother through his incarnation, to proclaim your will in his public ministry, to bear the darkness of your wrath and curse upon sin on the cross, but to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel on Easter morning. We thank you, Father, that by your spirit, you have gathered us around Christ and you have founded us upon him to be a city that is set on a hill. And so we pray, Father, that by your spirit, you will cause the light of Christ to be reflected in our lives, that others around us may see our good works and give glory to you, who are our Father in heaven. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus.